Hey church, welcome to Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Cody Mahaffey and I'm the connections and group pastor here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So our mission here is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus your whole life or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help draw you near to the person of Jesus. Be challenged and encouraged by his word and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you really are in him. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Great to be back with you again here at Frontline. As we are today, we're going to be wrapping up this series that we've been working our way through since the beginning of January looking at the life of Joseph. One of the major figures in the Old Testament takes up a huge uh, chunk of the book of Genesis. And so every week we've been walking through. And so today we're gonna actually end this series. All four churches in the Zero Collective are gonna be taking communion together as a way of uh, wrapping up the series. And the message, the the closing part of Joseph's story really leads well into uh, communion, into what that means together. And so uh, if you're watching online with us this morning, we're thrilled that you're with us. We would love for you to actually be Able to participate in communion with us. And so uh, right now would be a great time if you're watching to go find something, some form of cracker and juice. It's okay if it's goldfish crackers and Gatorade, that, that works. Um, uh, we're, we're talking about the body and the blood of Christ. And so we'd love for you just to be able to be able to participate and do that with us together as a church. Uh, but to get us into the story for today, uh, I, a friend of mine sent me this a few years ago and I loved it so much. I just want to read this to you. Says this, on the first day, she sadly packed her belongings into boxes, crates, and suitcases. On the second day, she had the movers come and collect her things. On the third day, she sat down for the last time at their beautiful dining room table by candlelight. She put on some soft background music and feasted on a pound of shrimp, a jar of caviar, and a bottle of spring water. When she finished, She went into each and every room of the house and deposited a few half-eaten shrimps dipped in caviar into the hollow center of the curtain rods. (laughs) She then cleaned up the kitchen and left. On the fourth day, the husband came back with his new girlfriend, and at first, all was bliss. Then slowly, the house began to smell. They tried everything, cleaning, mopping, airing out the place. Vents were checked for dead rodents. Carpets were steam cleaned. Air fresheners were hung everywhere. Exterminators were brought in to set off gas canisters, during which time the two had to move out for a few days. And in the end, they even paid to replace the expensive carpeting. Nothing worked. People stopped coming over to visit. Repairmen refused to work in the house. The maid quit. Finally, they couldn't take the stench any longer and decided they had to move. But a month later, even though they'd cut their price in half, they couldn't find a buyer for such a stinky house. Finally, unable to wait any longer for a purchaser, they had to borrow a huge sum of money from the bank to purchase a new place. Then the ex-wife called the man and asked how things were going. He told her the saga of the rotting house. She listened politely and said that she missed her old home terribly and would be willing to reduce her divorce settlement in exchange for having the house. Knowing she could have no idea how bad the smell really was, he agreed on a price that was only a fraction of what the house had been worth, but only if she would sign the papers that very day. 
She agreed, and within two hours, his lawyers delivered the complete paperwork. A week later, the man and his girlfriend stood smiling as they watched the moving company pack everything to take to their new home. And despite the ex-wife, they even took the curtain rods. Oh, man. Oh, we love a great revenge story, don't we? Oh, man, there is just nothing more satisfying than watching somebody else pay for what they did. Hollywood knows this, don't they? Think about the last 10 years, all the blockbuster movies, all the Marvel movies, right? All of them basically are revenge stories. That's what they are. Like we just don't get sick of it. We just see the same story again and again and again. We'll pay whatever we gotta pay. We love those stories. They start out with the antagonist doing something wrong and then the rest of the movie is the protagonist getting them back, making them pay the price. We love these stories. Why are those kinds of stories so satisfying to us? I think the reason is because deep down somewhere we understand that forgiveness is never free. Forgiveness is never free. Sin always has a price attached to it that has to be paid somehow. There's no such thing as free forgiveness. Forgiveness, if you really understand what it is, forgiveness is a decision on the part of the offended person to absorb the cost, the price, or the the penalty due the offender. That's what forgiveness is. It's a decision on the part of the offended person to absorb the penalty due to the offender. Think of it this way. If a banker forgives or pardons a loan, well, that means that the person who borrowed the money doesn't have to pay it back, but it also means that the banker or the bank has to then absorb the loss of the money for the loan. Um, If society pardons or forgives a criminal... Yes, it means that criminal goes free, but it also means that society then is going to absorb the consequences of that criminal's actions and behavior. Or on a more, you know, maybe personal note, if you invite me over to your house this week and I come over and I break your TV and you say, oh, that's okay, Brian, I forgive you. That's great, but that means then that you have to absorb the loss of the TV. Because forgiveness is never free. There's no such thing as free forgiveness. That's why it's so hard. But I would also argue that's why it's really the only thing that actually works to reconcile relationships, to bring healing, to bring freedom, to bring a sense of renewal. Forgiveness is the only thing that really has the power to do that. You certainly see that in the story of Joseph. Where we're gonna land his story today is in the final chapter. This is the forgiveness story between Joseph and his brothers who have done so much wrong to him. So if you haven't been tracking with us or you haven't been with us, uh, Joseph's story begins with Joseph as, as a young man. His brothers uh, strip him of his cloak. They strip him of his identity. They cast him down in a pit and then they sell him into slavery in, into Egypt. So Joseph loses his homeland, he loses his family, he's gone as a slave into Egypt, and then his brothers lie to their father about it. Well, some wild animal must have eaten him. And they just lie about it and they cover it up for years and years. And so what happens is Joseph becomes second in power in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. He's in control of all the resources of all the land of Egypt. He's risen to this place. 
And so as we saw last week, there's a famine that hits the land and the famine is so severe that it, it makes and forces Joseph's brothers to come to Egypt to ask for help, to get grain, to get supplies. And of course, who do they have to stand before and ask for help? But their brother, Joseph, the one. So Joseph, we find him, his brothers don't know his identity yet, but he's standing in front of his brothers. He's got all the power in the relationship. This is the perfect Marvel movie setup right here. Here it comes. But the story goes a very, very different direction. Let's take a look at this. This is uh, Genesis 45, verse one. It says this, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room and he said to his attendants, out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. So in this stunning, surprising end to the story where Joseph could have easily just taken revenge on his brothers in this moment with all the power he had, he extends grace to them. He extends uncommon mercy to his brothers. So how does he do this? I think a key to understanding how he's even able to do that is in verse eight, that last verse uh, we read where, it's, where he says, it was God who sent me here, not you. So what Joseph is doing, his eyes are on what God has been doing as the narrative of his story. He's choosing to focus on what God's been doing in his life story. He's choosing not to focus on what his brothers have done and have been doing in the narrative of his life story. So here's the question. How did Joseph get to Egypt? Was Joseph in Egypt because of the sin of his brothers against him? Or, or is Joseph in Egypt because of the good plan and purposes of God for his life? According to that passage we just read, the answer is yes. Both are true. Both are absolutely true. I'm just wondering if it's possible that God's plans and his purposes for your life are a part of the brokenness and unforgiveness of your story as well. So when you were cheated on, when you were abandoned, when you were lied to, when you were neglected, when you were lied about behind your back, is it possible that that not only was that an expression of someone's sin against you, but was God also allowing that in order to accomplish his good purposes, his good plan for your life? What's interesting here in this moment is that Joseph sees that all his sorrows were for a purpose. None of it was for a loss. So in a sense, if this family, Joseph's family, his brothers, if they, during this famine, if they didn't go into Egypt, and if Joseph hadn't risen to this place of second in command over all the resources in all of Egypt, then what would have happened to his brothers is they would have just sort of been assimilated into the pagan tribes of the time, and you would, history would have heard of them no more. 
But because Joseph was in the position he was in, he's going to be able to rescue them. He's going to be able to provide for them, to, to protect them and to save them so that they pass through this time of famine so that God's good plan is that for this family to become a nation, the nation of Israel. And for someday through the nation of Israel, the Messiah is going to come who's going to redeem and save it all. But none of that happens. None of that takes place unless Joseph in this moment can forgive his brothers and act on their behalf. It's all void unless he's able to come to a place of doing that. And so here's the question as we look at this passage this morning. I'd love for you to wrestle with it. this question. Has forgiveness actually taken place yet in the story? In those verses we just read, has, has forgiveness actually taken place yet? It's, it's kind of hard to say, isn't it? I, I mean... At no point did Joseph's brothers, did they actually say, oh, wow, you're Joseph? Oh, hey, Joseph, I just want you to know we're so sorry for what we did. What we did was clearly wrong. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. You know, they never say that. They never acknowledge what they did. They never ask for forgiveness. And in those verses, at any point, does Joseph actually say the words, hey, I forgive you for what you did? No. So has forgiveness actually happened? Here, here's what's interesting. This, this question is exposing something about the nature of forgiveness that I think we need to understand. It's this idea that forgiveness is our part, but reconciliation takes two people. Okay, did you know forgiveness and reconciliation, those are two very different things. We, we get those things confused all the time. I would say in the church almost more than anywhere else, we think those things are the same word. But forgiveness is our part because forgiveness is between you and God vertically. It's about how you allow God to become the narrator of your life story instead of them. Forgiveness is, is always possible. It's always possible because it's your part. You can always choose forgiveness. Reconciliation is not always possible because it involves two people. It involves two people coming back together to work through it. Here's what I would tell you. I would tell you, I think forgiveness has happened in this story so far. I think Joseph had done it. I think the fact that he's been able, he's able to respond the way he is in this moment, he has come to a place of forgiveness for his brothers. What has not happened yet in the story is reconciliation. That's not taken place yet in the story. So I'd love if we could, uh, just for a moment here, I'd love to just kind of pause and just reflect on how, how do you forgive a family member? from this story. How do you forgive a family member, people who, for most of us, the hardest and worst damage that happens in our lives comes from family members. Now, this could apply to how do you forgive anyone? How do you forgive that your business partner? How do you forgive, you know, your neighbor who you're in a feud with about the dog pooping in, in your yard, you know, whatever it is. This could apply to anybody, anything. But I, I would tell you, this story is really about family members coming to a place of forgiveness. And I would tell you, it's, it's the place where so many of us, that's the worst damage of our lives. So, so the first thought here is the more intimate the relationship, the longer the process of forgiveness takes. And when we're talking about some of the deepest wounds of our lives, the, the more intimate the relationship was or is, the longer the process of forgiveness takes. Okay, I can forgive the stranger who steals $5 from me or the guy who cuts me off in traffic. But what about the wife 
who's asked to forgive her husband's infidelity again and again and again. But what about the adult child of the alcoholic abusive parent who wants to still love their parent, wants to still have a relationship with them, but doesn't want to get caught up in the same cycle again and again, the same toxic relationship with no boundaries over and over again. What about the parent of the child that keeps lying, keeps breaking trust, keeps breaking your heart, but then whenever they're in trouble, they turn around and say, hey, mom, can I have money? Can you bail me out again? Can I, can I live with you guys again? The more intimate the relationship, the closer the relationship, the longer the process of forgiveness takes. We forget, we read Joseph's story in a few minutes, but years had passed between the moment Joseph's brothers did what they did to him to this moment where he's standing in front of them with all the power to either forgive or take revenge, years and years of his life have taken place. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's okay if it's taking you a while to process through forgiveness. The closer and the more intimate the relationship, the longer that takes. Second thought here, talking and listening is progress. Right, we just said if reconciliation really hasn't happened yet in the story of Joseph, but they're talking, they're listening. There's a relational connection that's still happening. And the reason I say that is because a lot of times in families, we think silence is a good thing, right? For many of us, we're like, oh man, at Thanksgiving, nobody was like screaming and yelling and throwing the table over. It was a great Thanksgiving. It was a great family visit. It was a great Christmas together because nobody got mad and left early screaming at the other family members. So, so we think silence is a good thing, but oftentimes unforgiveness, bitterness, those things are very quiet, actually. So, some of the worst damage that's done, the worst pain that's done are actually the things we don't say. The walls we put up the distance we put between ourselves and another family member, the way that we choose to just disengage and walk away instead of expressing our love. And so, you know, it's okay, I would tell you, if your next step from today is just to open up a conversation with that family member. Maybe your next step coming out of here is just to, to reach out and just to have a conversation, just to listen and just to talk. It's okay if you don't move in one conversation all the way to forgiveness and reconciliation. In fact, I would tell you, I think a lot of times that's kind of unrealistic, putting that kind of a pressure on ourselves. Talking, listening, that's progress. That's movement toward forgiveness, even if it hasn't happened yet. And then the third thing I would say, how do you forgive a family member? At some point, and by far, this is the hardest one to do. The hardest one to do is this last one. You have to come to a place where you're willing to surrender your right to get even. You have to surrender your right to get even. <laughs> we all know somebody like this, right? I, I literally am thinking of a guy I know right now who... Man, this guy, he's, he's very, very angry about his ex-wife and what she did to him years and years ago. And so this guy, every Uber rider who has had him in his car for five minutes has heard about his ex-wife. You've met people like this, right? Every person who's ever cut his hair, he sits there in the barber chair and within five minutes, they've heard about his ex-wife and what she did. You've met, right, 15 minutes, 15 minutes with this guy and you're gonna hear about that bitterness, that, that anger that he's carrying. Some of you know someone like this, don't you? 
Some of you, if you don't know someone like this, it may be because you are someone like this. <laughs> Here's what's happening when you meet somebody who, who does that. It's like they, you can't even get hardly into a conversation and they're talking about it. What's happening there is over time, their anger, their unforgiveness toward that person begins to you know, harden and calcify into an identity. It literally becomes the very identity that we look at ourselves through. Our anger, our unforgiveness can actually become the identity of our lives. So what happens then is, I, I, even if I wanted to forgive, the, the fear is, man, if I forgave, who am I then? What, what does that mean about me if I forgive? For some people, if we allow ourselves to go so far down that path where our anger and our unforgiveness become an identity, we almost come to a place where we can't forgive because it would completely undo the very identity that we've based our entire lives on. We are our anger. We are our unforgiveness. Can I just tell you, Jesus has a way better identity for you than that. He has a much better plan for what he wants you to live into. But we have to come to this place where we're willing to surrender our right to get even. You see this in the story, what happens next. So to kind of fast forward through the next few chapters of Genesis, what happens is in the midst of this famine, Jacob uh, and his brothers, Joseph's brothers, they all come to live in Egypt under the care of Joseph. And so it's sort of like a family reunion. Joseph is, is taking care of them. He's providing for them. He's protecting them. And all seems great until finally Jacob, their father, passes away. You've seen this in families before too, right? It's kind of like, oh no, mom died. Now what's gonna happen? Mom was the only one keeping everybody from killing each other. Jacob passes away. And now the fact that this hasn't been reconciled, it hasn't been worked through, rises to the surface again. And so finally we find the moment of reconciliation in the story. Verse 14 uh, of 50, it says, after burying jo Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to, for to forgive our sin. So this is it. Finally, this is the moment where they acknowledge that they did something wrong, where they beg forgiveness. They actually say to Joseph, what we did was wrong. Will you please forgive us? Go ahead to that. Oh yeah. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said, which by the way is the fulfillment of the original dream that Joseph had, if you're tracking with us. This is the moment. It didn't look anything like Joseph in his dream thought it was gonna look like, but this is that moment of, of it being fulfilled. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. So, so again, this is the moment of reconciliation where what we're really able to see is Joseph has completely surrendered his right to get even. But how has he done that? He had every right to, to, to take action 
and to right the wrongs that had happened. A key is in that verse 19, where what we were just reading. Again, what we said before, he's focusing on God's part in the narrative of his life. He's not choosing to focus on his brothers and emphasize their part in the narrative of his life. And that line he says, am I God? Am I God that I, I'm here in this position to punish you? Joseph recognizes it's not my job to pay my brothers back. It's not my job to bring justice to them. My, my job is to focus on God's plan for my life. Can, can we get to this place where we actually surrender our right to get even and allow ourselves to entrust, to entrust ourselves to God and to entrust those who have hurt us to God to say, am I God? My, my place is not here to punish you. It's not my role. That's God's job. That's hard to do. Now, here's why that matters. This whole series, every week of the series, we've been saying the same thing about Joseph. I'm gonna say it again here on this last time at the end of this series. Joseph's story, the reason it's in the Bible is to show us Jesus. The reason Joseph is such a central character and takes up so much of the story in the Old Testament is because Joseph points to a true and better Joseph. He points to Christ. And so when we look at the story of Joseph, we're not supposed to look at Joseph and see ourselves. Like, oh yeah, he's kind of like me. We're supposed to look at Joseph and see Jesus. He gives us a picture of Jesus. We're more like his brothers in the story or the other characters in the story. That's where we find ourselves. And so what we see here in this moment with Joseph is as we see Joseph points us to Jesus, that Jesus forgave us. He entrusted himself to God. I love the way Peter said it. One of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, he's talking about the moment of Jesus on the cross. He's describing what Jesus did on the cross. He says this, when they hurled their insults at him, at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself. How did Jesus move to a place of forgiveness? He, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, which means he also entrusted who? Those who were crucifying him, you and me, uh, th those who deserved the punishment for what was happening. If we want to get out of this place of bitterness and, and unforgiveness in our lives, we have to move to this place of entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. But what if I don't get to see them pay for what they did? What if they actually get away with what they did and, and they don't ever get punished for it? Yeah, it might happen. It's none of your business. God is the narrator of your life story. That's where your focus is supposed to be. Can you entrust yourself to him who judges justly? When we do that, what we realize is that God first did that for us. I love what C.S. Lewis said about forgiveness. He said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I love that so much because it doesn't say, you know what God does is he just, he excused the inexcusable in us. It's not what it says. But God, when we had inexcusable things, he just canceled us. No. The way that what God did is he forgave the inexcusable in us. In other words, he took upon himself, he absorbed in himself the penalty that was due us. 
But it's only when we realize that, that he's done that for us, that he forgave the inexcusable in us, that we then have the power to turn and actually offer that same forgiveness to forgive the inexcusable in other people. My grandpa was a World War II vet. And like so many of his generation, he lived well into his 90s. Like so many of his generation, he never talked about the war. He never talked about his experiences in the war. Even when I'd try to ask, he, he never answered those questions. But I have this one memory. I was a kid, and I remember we were there. My, my grandma and grandpa were there. We were at some outdoor, I, I can't remember if it was like a carnival or a parade or what it was. It was some outdoor event. And I remember there was this horn player, and this horn player was, was playing a solo. And I remember looking over and just seeing tears streaming down my grandpa's face. And it was just very clear he was struggling to hold his emotions in check. And... So I remember after the horn player was done, I remember asking, I said, Grandpa, are you okay? What's wrong? And here's basically the answer he gave me. He said, whenever I hear the sound of a horn, I remember. I remember the horn that would call us men to order every single morning. I remember the horn that would play taps at my friend's funerals, military funerals, even over all these years. And he said, what, what, what happens is no matter what I'm doing, no matter how grumpy I am, no matter how, you know, irritated I am or, or you know, worried or upset that I, I am, whenever I hear that sound of the horn, immediately I remember friends who gave their lives for me. And, and immediately I'm overwhelmed with this sense of gratitude that I'm here, that every breath is still a gift. Essentially what he was saying is he, he was saying the sound of a horn reminded him of his own salvation. I think that's what communion is supposed to be for us. Communion is, is this sacred uh, mystical sacrament the church has gathered and taken for centuries. Some, depending on the background that you come from, maybe it was called the Eucharist. If you grew up Catholic, maybe it was called the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper. But basically, it's commemorating this moment. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that was broken for you. And the same way he took the cup and he said, this represents my blood, which was shed for you. And then he said, it was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Now do this in remembrance of me. And so whenever we take communion, just like the sound of the horn for my, my grandpa, I think it's supposed to draw us back again. It's supposed to make our hearts softened again to, to this fact that our own forgiveness was not free. Some of you in this room, you have a lot to forgive. You have horrible things that have been done against you. There's good reason for you to be in a place of bitterness and unforgiveness. As we take, as we come to the Lord's table, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, as we do that today, can we just remember our own forgiveness was not free? Can, can, we, can you begin with you? Can you begin with your own forgiveness? Can, can you begin with the truth that what God has done for you on the cross is he forgave the inexcusable in you. He didn't excuse it. He forgave it. He absorbed the penalty of it. That's the only thing that really does ever work. 
Uh, my friend Greg Dempster does such incredible work with Christ Life Ministries. He talks about these three primary areas of forgiveness represented in these three circles in this Venn diagram. What's been done to me, what I've done to others, and what I hold against myself. Most of us uh, have one area of these three that carries a lot more damage than the other ones. One of these even right now is probably just lighting up for you. Can you begin with you? Can you just remember that your own forgiveness was free? Where, where do you need to uh, just allow God to do some business with you even today as we take communion together? I'll tell you, for me, honestly, it's this one right here, what I hold against myself. I mean, I've worked through what's been done to me. I've worked through forgiveness of even what I've done to others. But this one is the one that for me is always a struggle. I don't know if any of you are like me. My internal voice is very self-condemning, very self-critical. So communion is a time when I remember that God forgave the inexcusable in me. My sin, oh, the, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord on oh my soul. Can you start with you? Can you just begin there today? So here's what we're gonna do. If, you, if you're uh, watching with us in a moment, Ashley's going to sing. And as we do, we're gonna take the elements together on our own as, she, as we're singing and reflecting. If you're in the room, uh, there are four communion stations, two on either side of the stage and then two in the back. So whichever one's closest to you, as the song is being played, I'll offer a prayer and then go and take the elements and then just spend some time with God remembering your own forgiveness. So Jesus, we just come to you right now. As we close out this story, we just recognize that you, your forgiveness has absorbed the penalty and forgave the inexcusable in us. And it's only in that, God, it's only in remembering that you've done that for us. It's only in allowing that to come into the center of our lives and transform us from the inside out that we have any hope, any possibility of being set free. God, we, are, we want our identity not to be in our anger, not to be in who we're against, who we're canceling, who we're upset with, who we're trying to get back at. We want our identity to be found in you, the one who put, took it all on, the one who paid the price for it. God, this morning, uh, we just remind ourselves that our answers are not found in, you know, pop psychology or in self-help ideas. God, our answers are found in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So God, would you do your work that only you can do in us again so that we can be agents of reconciliation in this world. We ask in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. You can come and take the elements. We hope this message encouraged you to know who God is and who you are in him. If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com slash next. We look forward to connecting with you there and we'll see you back here next week.